Hello, and welcome to another episode of Humanities Plus. I am your host, Rachel Scray, a UW-Green Bay History, Digital and Public Humanities, and Arts Management student. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Assistant Professor of English and Humanities, Julie Case, and Assistant Professor of English and Humanities, Christopher Williams. Thank you both for being here today. In this episode, we will be exploring the topic of the relationship between humanities and digital gaming. Because the term game and even digital game is extremely broad and can refer to several different genres, we will specifically be talking about gaming platforms and methods used for educational purposes like Twine and Serious Games. The simplest definition of Serious Games are games in which allow people to learn. We've all probably interacted with Serious Games before but never really thought to label it as such. Uh, for example, I remember playing playing Where in the World is Carmen San Diego as a kid all the time, and I never would have thought, like, this is a serious game. It was a game that I played for fun, and along the way I learned about geography and other things. Or games like the Oregon Trail, which is a lot older than Where in the World is Carmen San Diego, where players explore and face the realities of a 19th century pioneer. Twine is an open source tool for telling interactive non-linear stories. Knowledge of coding isn't required, but if you do know like CSS, JavaScript, HTML, you can further customize the game. Um, I've had experience making one Twine game and it was for a history course on England where students were asked to design a Twine storyline uh, that asked players to be a part of the English Civil War. So you had to choose a side if you're gonna be against the tyrant or for the crown. And that was, that was really fun to do that. So serious games and programs like Twine provide humanists and scholars with the opportunity to rethink the way in which games are studied and are useful teaching tools. So my first question to start us off is, what are the potentials of digital games as interactive modes of learning for the humanities? And how can educational games enable exploration and critical engagement with ideas, processes, and, and data? Well, there's a lot to I think, unpack there a mm -hmm. little bit. So let's take it uh, one step at a time. Now. So the first question you had was interactive modes of learning for humanities. Uh, I think if you're thinking about Twine especially, as you talked about before, the great thing about Twine um, is that anybody can make it. Right? It doesn't depend upon having a sort of background in coding or computer science. So you have people from all over humanities bringing uh, disciplines to the field. Um, so I think it's one thing about that. I guess I'll just talk too about using games in the classroom as teaching tools. So there are a couple of games that I like to teach that I think are specifically um, expect or were specifically made to kind of help people learn about topics. So one game I teach sometimes is Valiant Hearts, which is a game put out by Ubisoft that's about World War One, and the designers are French. They talk about how they wanted to in the game engage with um, artifacts from their family history and um, the mechanisms in the game to teach people about world, what World War I was actually like and kind of understanding about it in, 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 on a deeper level. So there are things, it's beyond just telling you about World War I, you're also, you know, you have to engage with the trenches, you have to engage with the chemical warfare that was happening, you, you're dealing with the weapons that were used at that time, you're dealing with barbed wire, but you're also connecting with the characters. And then there are mechanisms in the game where they have real world artifacts that you collect and there's a story and pictures and ways to engage with actual things that is really interesting. Another game that's kind of like that is Never Alone, which was commissioned by the Inupiat tribe in Alaska to kind of raise tribal awareness among young people who they felt like were more engaged with video games than tribal practices. And so there's a lot of interesting things 
related to that specific worldview and culture that are really interesting. So in the game, you can play as one player, you can play as two people, and there's one character is a young girl, and then other character is a fox, which is kind of cool. And as you go through the game, um, you engage with nature. You, it's the story is a folklore legend from that particular area and then you also unlock videos about tribal practices and customs that help you learn about the culture in, in a really interesting and engaging way. Yeah, I just want to say that um, both the games you identified there are not strictly educational games in their sense. Right, exactly. Right, so I think when you think about educational games are designed to explore data and, and do this critical thinking, other games are doing that too. Right? Mm -hmm. Games explicitly designed for entertainment purposes perhaps also have this undercurrent of exploration to them as well and like exploring these new ideas and new thoughts and new feelings. Um, especially on, on, uh, among independent uh, producers of games. Right? Yeah, I think it's interesting you were talking about Carmen San Diego, right? You don't know that you're learning because it's fun, right? And mm -hmm. that's part of, I think, the idea behind games. And I guess just one more thing I'd like to mention is thinking about not necessarily just using games as learning tools, but learning pr using principles of game design as approaches to educational design. So James Paul G has a book that's called What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy. I think that's the title. And basically his idea is that we learn naturally in games, that that's sort of the games kind of tie in naturally to our instinctive ways of learning, that there are things like challenges or gradually increases in complexity and that you learn in games in a much more natural and fun way than maybe you do in school. And so his idea is that as educators, we should be more open to using principles of game design, even if we're not teaching games at all, so that we can use some of those same approaches to learning and that that makes learning more fun mm -hmm. in the way that you're talking about. That's really interesting because I do feel like, and I don't know if this necessarily applies to today, but there has always been this um, stereotype that if you're just sitting down playing a video game, you're not interacting or like engaging your mind in any way. But that's not the case whatsoever. Like like you said, when even if you're playing a game that you don't know is educational, you're still um, like getting that in in your mind. Like I remember doing some traveling and being like, oh, I know this about South Dakota. Why do I know this about South Dakota? Because I had to use it as a clue to find Carmen. <laughs> it was even like uh, the game series Assassin's Creed, right? Mm -hmm. um, the most recent articulations of that were uh, uh, games that took place in ancient Egypt, right? And also the, the Mesopotamia, uh, ancient Greece and Rome, right? Um, ancient Greece, rather. Uh, and they have a mode for that, which is strictly exploration mode, which means you're not actually doing the, the mechanics of the game anymore. You're not trying to hide from or assassinate people, right? <laughs> Instead, you're exploring like the Parthenon, right? Or the, the pyramids. Right. So there's, there's people who are building in this mode so to uh, not just have entertainment here, but also other aspects to the game as well. Yeah, so talking about Twine specifically, um, it can be used to construct environments that ask critical and provocative questions without the player really maybe even knowing that it's asking them to use those different parts of their brains because it is interactive experiences and you're doing it um, often through role playing. So in order to do this, creators put a large importance on narrative building. Um, what should those interested in making such games plan for when wanting to develop uh, interactive narratives that achieve the outcomes of educating or engaging its players? Um, sure. So I think when you're building a Twine game experience story, and I think I use those terms kind of interchangeably because I think Twine is more than just a game engine, right? Mm -hmm. or to get in, engines are wrong, right? A game platform. Uh, many people who construct projects on Twine don't view them necessarily as games, but are part of a larger narrative, right? I think the core question you should ask yourself when doing any of this stuff is, why does this have to be in Twine? Right? Why is this not a? Why is this not an essay? Why is this not a poem? What sort of 
experiences uh, this lend to the interactor, the player, the reader, um, that would not be there otherwise. Um, and I think if you look at some of the best examples of this, uh, you can see that uh, there's a game, uh, I call it a game, uh, called Player Two by Lydia Nia. You know, you know this one? Um, it's great. It's uh, asked the, uh, the player to take a self-inventory, right? And you actually type in, um, uh, you enter text at some points in the project. Um, at other points, it asks you to kind of sit in with this reflective mode, um, which would be difficult to achieve outside of that. Um, and I think that's a perfect articulation of something that has to be entwined, has to have the interactive mode for it to work. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it, is what, what does the game mechanism add that you wouldn't get in another media? And I think that, you know, beyond just thinking about games as you hear the content of the game is about education, but you can also think about the ways that participating in a game trains people to think in different ways. I always think back, one of the games I loved a lot as a kid was the King's Quest series from Sierra back in the 80s. And something that I find myself doing, so in this game you played, a, the one I loved was King's Quest IV, which was about Rosella, and she's this female protagonist in kind of a fairy tale themed world, and you had to do things like walk onto a screen, if the unicorn was there, you had to put the bridle on the unicorn, like walk over, be close enough to the unicorn, type, put bridle on unicorn, have it work, but that was really hard to do. So. The, the, the way that you had to approach it is walk onto the screen. If the unicorn wasn't there, you would immediately turn around, leave, and then walk back again to see if maybe the unicorn would randomly appear this time. And I still, to this day, it's 30 years later, and whenever I walk into a room looking for something, like, for instance, my keys, and they're not there, my first impulse is to leave the room and come back again in case they reappear. And I think that just really speaks to the ways that games can train you to think in particular patterns and approach problems from critical perspectives. And that's maybe not the most useful <laughs> approach to, to solving problems, but I think it's a good example of, you know, I haven't played that game in a really long time, but that still is one of the first solutions that comes to my mind is thinking about leaving the room and coming back in. And I think what Chris said about asking the reader, I mean the player, to think about their own engagement is really important. Another game that does that is Papers, Please, which is a game where you play as a passport control agent on a on the border of kind of a Cold War era-ish fake country. And one of the things you have to decide is, do you let people in? Do you accept bribes? Do you try to support the resistance? Um, and what that does is it makes you think about your own ethics, right? When you let in someone and they bomb somebody and kill people, like that's kind of on your hands. And it, even though there's the distance of the game, it does make you think about your own participation as, as a player in a way that I think is really useful and that you don't necessarily get in other media. And I feel it's important to articulate here that none of these would be, be under the banner of serious games. Right. Yeah, I think that's like, a good point. Um, that we think about serious games, we think about games have to tackle this big, like, large issue, like mm -hmm. uh, global warming, for example, or climate change, or in other, uh, other respects, like, um, you know, there's all kinds of people invested in this from healthcare and defense industries and military industries making games for their own purposes. The games we've identified here, I think pretty much all of them are not under that banner, but they're still doing meaningful work, right, um, in terms of growing in the discourse and, and the conversation about what games can do and what game can how game mechanics can be used to tackle these larger issues without being overtly about, you know, this certain concern. While doing research for this episode, I noticed that, Julie, uh, you're interested in the study of using games to build empathy for marginalized or misunderstood communities, um, in particular non-normative identity experiences. How can digital games are, um, in your research and study, uh, what's, what's the importance of using games in being able to build empathy for non-normative identity experiences? 
So this is a really interesting question, and I have a lot to say. I'll try not to ramble. I think that games do have, as we were just talking about, right, there are things that you can do in games that you can't do with other media that are really useful for building empathy just kind of across the board. So I'll give a couple examples. So um, there are indie games that I think are specifically engaged with helping communicate personal experience. Um, a game I teach sometimes is Vivant Ludi by Kaylin Sandal. She's a transgender game designer. She talks a lot about diary games, which are games that are specifically engaged with trying to share personal experience. So this game is pretty simple. It's basically two rooms. You play as a transgender indie game designer in her apartment who has agoraphobia and doesn't want to leave. And basically the whole game is moving between the two rooms, making sure she eats, showers, sleeps, pays her bills, talks to friends, and then eventually releases her game. And it's just a game about self-care and managing workload. And when when Kaylin Zandel talks about it, she says that the thing about diary games is they're not necessarily meant to be fun, but they're meant to share experiences and that that is just as powerful and not necessarily something you think about in association with games. That said, though, I think that there are also a lot of more mainstream games that do this too. So a game I really like is Life is Strange by Don't Nod. Um, and in this game, you play a high school student um, Max, who is a photography student, and she learns really early on that she can reverse time. And so the whole mechanism of the game is you walking around, talking to people, reversing time for a short period, and then having conversations again and trying to build empathy. And then the results of those conversations have some pretty serious effects. So there's one point, I don't want to spoil anything, but sorry, <laughs> there's one point where you're, you have a friend who is the victim of sexual assault and subsequent bullying, and so she attempts suicide, and in the game you're asked to talk her down off of the roof, and your ability to do this is pretty much solely based on how much you've engaged with her throughout the game. Have you listened to her? Have you looked at her photographs? Have you talked to her? And then um, you can either save her life or not. The game goes forward either way. The other thing that's really interesting in this game is you develop a relationship, I think, with this character. And then later, I think at the core, this is a game about mystery, about time travel, about choices, but it's also about two really close female friends who may have a romantic attraction or relationship to each other. You don't necessarily know that until later in the game after you've already created a connection to her. And so I think that does sort of ask you to identify really closely with someone that is maybe different from you. And then I guess the last thing I'll just say is that I think this extends beyond just the content of the game. One thing that happened to me a few years ago was I was really grumpy about political perspectives that were different than my own. And so I went through this phase of a couple months where I was just unfollowing people on Facebook because I was they were making me angry. And one thing I noticed, so for example, my uncle was really grumpy about Confederate statues being taken down and I had to unfollow him. I couldn't handle that for a couple of months. So a lot of these people were people I'm related to, people in my family, people I really am closely connected to. But I noticed there was a group of people that I didn't ever unfollow. And these were my gamer friends from when I played World of Warcraft. And I was no longer playing World of Warcraft. I wasn't raiding. I didn't need to talk to them. But not only did I not unfollow them, but I actively read their posts and I still do to this day. And that was really interesting that that was true, that I was more willing to unfollow my own family, but not people that I'd never met. And so I did some research and I found that there are actually studies about World of Warcraft specifically, but I think this is true just socially about games in general, is that communicating and working with people in a game actually builds tolerance, even with actual real world people beyond the content of the game. So even if the game is a game like World of Warcraft that isn't necessarily interested in helping people relate to non-normative experiences, but that can actually create relationships that allow you to be more tolerant with actual people in the physical world. I think, too, you mentioned that this is a part of this question I was thinking about how we build empathy for marginalized uh, populations, right? I think we need to ask ourselves when we're playing a game, who made this? 
right? I mean, Julie brought up some um, some people, uh, a trans creator, right? Um, and I think part of what I love about the indie scene in particular, as opposed to these big mainstream games, is that, especially with Twine, it allows people who historically have not had access to these institutions that allow for game development, right, for, for, very, for whatever reason. Um, but Twine and these other sort of independent scenes allow you people who historically don't have a voice to create a voice there. So as you're playing these projects, you might ask yourself, like, who is doing this? Who's profiting off of this? Where is this money going? Is it going in ha uh, the, 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 the pockets of uh, marginalized creators, or is it going to these larger entities? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think platforms like Twine do allow for anyone to make a game and put it out there and have a, a voice that people can access. It's a really good idea. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was actually one of my questions was going to be, you know, how how do games engage with the public and and create dialogues and access. I think access is a really important thing when thinking about games and I don't just mean like the ability to have access to the internet. I mean like accessibility on all corners of it and I know um, I've seen, I believe I saw a Twine game, I was gonna write it down, I forgot, um, but where it had, um, for those who are blind, it had audio to it. So do you know of anything in that realm of like just using games to be more accessible? Do you mean in terms of game design or uh, games game design? Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's an ongoing conversation. I, think so too. Um, I would argue, and I'm not necessarily prepared with statistics here, but historically, games have not been the best at um, including uh, in the conversation of folks with, with different needs, um, particularly if you think about controllers. Right? Controllers are not designed for anybody with... Um, designed for people with two able-bodied hands, mm -hmm. right? Um, that phrase might be problematic. Um, but I think the conversation is maybe shifting slightly. Yeah, yeah, I guess this isn't an area that I know a lot about, but it does seem like people are thinking about it and mm -hmm. talking about it. And there are a lot of conversations just about representation in general in games, so I think that is something that is maybe not the strongest <laughs> in gaming right now, but right. that people are thinking about. Right, and I think there's a critical mode of, like, asking these important questions of, um, yeah, this game is great, you've got a great game here, can everybody play it? Right. right. What is lost by having accessibility modes, for example? Because some people have been kind of cranky about, like, this is the narrative that needs to be there, but okay, great, why? Why can't you have an accessibility mode? For example, there's a game called um, With Those Who Love Alive, which is created in Twine by uh, a, a woman named uh, Portentine Charity Hardscape, and it has a colorblind mode, right? So it's, it's these simple questions, which seems like not that simple, but... Um, that help include the people in the conversation or include people in the experience. And I guess these conversations are taking place in just in general too in academic landscapes, thinking about how, for instance, online education can be accessible for other people and ways that as educators you can, you know, use different approaches to help make your, your stuff available to all kinds of learners. And I think with games, you know, as someone who teaches a lot with games, that is something I worry about, right? Like, can I make sure that this is going to be available and accessible to all people in my class? And I think that is still a problem that we're wrestling with, not just in games, but across education, too. Yeah, I think as a, like a creator of you know, creative endeavors, you should ask yourself, too, like, what is lost by making this as inclusive as possible, if anything? And what is, frankly, is gained by doing that, right? Um, I think that was a kind of a, a question that many folks hadn't asked themselves very seriously for a while. Yeah, that's a good point. And then I have a, another question about accessibility on, on the more of like educational side of it, of uh, information. And so, you know, like digital and public humanities, one of the big 
pillars, I guess, of it would be that it takes information that are typically put behind paywalls or things like that, and it makes it more accessible to the public. So I've seen a lot of games on Twine. I was just playing one. I can't remember the name of it, but it was about the um, learning a ritual from the the magical papyrus, the great magical papyrus um, from ancient Greece, and you literally uh, went through it doing this ritual. And this is this information that maybe not everyone has. It's uh, done, it's scholarly research, all of this stuff. And so people who aren't in the education system or higher education system may not have access to all that information. But do games like the ones that we've been talking about create accessibility to complex information to the public? And how do they? Sorry. (laughs) I think definitely. I mean, yeah, and it depends a little bit on the game. But there are a lot of, I think people and designers that are specifically engaged with creating games that help promote social change or social issues. So for instance, um, the Eterna project was one where they um, created, it was a puzzle-based game that was sort of meant to solve science problems by having people solve puzzles and create these RNA molecules that could then be synthesized in the lab and that was used for actual real-life um, solutions to medical problems. Another game I sometimes teach is Spent, which was created in association with the Urban Ministries of Durham in North Carolina that was about homelessness and specifically the issues that that particular nonprofit worked with. And so in the game, it's really short and it's free and you play, it takes maybe 10 minutes to play, you get $1,000 and your job is to basically make it through the month by you know dealing with things like grocery shopping and rent and taking care of your kids. And the statistics, I don't know if I remember them exactly, but basically after the game was released in 10 months, it had raised $45,000 from 25,000 new people that had never donated before. And I think that that just really speaks to the ways that games can not only provide information about, for instance, like what it's like to be in a low-income situation where you might be facing the prospect of homelessness, but also giving people from a really distant places access to that information and the ability to participate in you know donating money or helping with solutions that might um, create real social change yeah and I think on the flip side of that there's a new twine game newish twine game called you of Jeff Bezos um, I think that this person's name is Chris Linkman I think um, but the premise is, is you you wake up one day and you're Jeff Bezos the richest man in the world um, who has a I can't remember how much the game stipulates for his wealth but somewhere in the you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, you're faced with a choice. How much do you pay off? Do you, do you go about your daily life or do you fix the Flint water crisis? Do you, uh, do you pay off um, Puerto Rico's debt from Hurricane Maria, right? So it really puts, and has numbers next to it. This is how much this would cost. So along the same lines, it enables us to think about this huge amount of wealth that is accumulated by one person. Um, how could that be like systemically um, uh, utilized? Uh, which is kind of the opposite thing with that, like thinking about this idea of this income inequity between these two projects. I think it's really interesting. That's interesting. I haven't played that. Do you feel like you gain empathy for Jeff Bezos while you're playing it? Um, I think it's more about the question of what it means to be a billionaire. This is a thing that we should, as a society, be cool with. That's fascinating. Um, Yeah, I don't think it really paints Jeff Bezos in a super sympathetic light. No. Thank you guys for this great discussion. Yeah. I'm gonna, uh, I have one more question, um, and it's something that uh, Dr. Boswell was talking to me about that you guys are interested in starting a possible like game studies uh, like workshop. Is that what I heard? Is that right? Um, yeah, so 
uh, we both came here. We didn't know uh, we were being hired at the same time. It was really exciting to be like, there's two of us now. Yeah. We're interested in this. So <laughs> we decided to put that momentum to work a little bit and um, create what I think we're calling a center, right? A center for games and interactive media. Yeah, that's the working title. Okay. Um, and this would be a, uh, the hope of this is an interdisciplinary uh, center that anybody kind of invested in thinking about what games can do and how games can, these larger questions we've been talking about throughout this, this podcast um, can be further explored and critical and also kind of um, uh, creative lenses, right? Um, yeah, and we we're hoping to bring in speakers and uh, create a streaming channel to kind of continue this conversation. Yeah, so we just want to create a consistent platform for people to talk about games and think about games and maybe design and develop games and have people play them um, just sort of in a long-term way here at UWGB. And we've gotten a lot of support from um, from the college, College of Arts, Humanities, Social Sciences, um, and it seems like people are really excited for this initiative, or this project, so that's been encouraging too. Yeah, and we're super excited also. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds really excited. I, I don't know when you'll be doing that, but I hope you do it before <laughs> I graduate this spring. <laughs> uh, that's the way we're working on it now, um, and fingers crossed that we'll have something report back soon. Yeah, that'll be really cool. Um, I want to thank you both for being here today um, and for the discussions that we had and for answering the questions, and you guys have been great. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. so much for having us. Thank you. all for listening to this episode about the intersection of humanities and gaming. This episode was recorded in November of 2019. The following audio was recorded after the formal interview was complete. In this audio, we discuss more informally about our connections with games and expand on topics discussed in the episode. I hope you enjoy and thank you for listening and for your support. interesting like I wonder if we just had a conversation about games if there were no microphones if we were just sitting here like, oh it'd be way better I yeah. think yeah. Yeah. it's like not as if you had like, this mic, or like an ambient mic up here just picking this up yeah yeah yeah, yeah. as I always love the podcast where they're just kind of like goofing around and joking and stuff you know like right. it but probably comes to be so serious be being more comfortable in front of this which would be fun when you think about the streaming stuff yes, like yes. we're gonna be so awkward the first like five or six times we do this <laughs> maybe we can figure yeah. out a ways to, to mitigate that I guess yeah well, that probably would have been a good question. I know we talked about it a little bit, but yeah, just feeling more comfort behind a game when interacting right. with other people. Um, just like you were saying, like you um, still have all of your uh, World of Warcraft people on Facebook, but not your family. But like just being able to like talk to people. Like I can talk to, um, so I play ESO a lot. So I can yeah. talk to uh, the people who are on my list for hours and we've never met. And people that I have met on multiple occasions or, like, it just in person, like, I don't have that, um, yeah, that comfort. Yeah. What's, I mean, it comes with, like, the shared interests, you know, yeah. like, you can talk about, you know, like, Morrowind or whatever, right, mm -hmm. with that. Yeah. Um, um, like, I don't know what expansion, they're on, like, a deep expansion for that, right? Yeah, there's, like, Somerset now like, and, like... Elsewhere or something? Else, like yep. Yeah. Yeah, I played that for a while, but I haven't checked in. I didn't realize it was still going, still going strong, apparently. Yeah. Um, There's yeah. some of us. <laughs> right. Well, that, but it's that core group, that core committed group who's invested in this, right? That kind of helps conversation about this. That's a great thing we didn't talk about, but like the idea of the games as a way to 
talk to people. You mentioned some other people you wouldn't necessarily interact with outside Yeah, and that. that's amazing, right? I was thinking about Pokemon Go, right? Like, just mm-hmm. walking around right. and meeting people in my town I would never meet otherwise, but, like, it's just like, oh, we're catching, we're doing this raid battle. Like, let me hear about your work as a plumber. Like, yeah. it's kind of cool. I did a, um, for one of my classes, I did, like, a presentation about Pokemon Go. Yeah. Um, but it was for uh, my mu- museums and galleries class, so I focus it on, like, how um, it was, like, not... I was about to say the word conspiracy, a controversy, Uh, the controversy of using Pokemon Go in places like the Holocaust Museum or like different things like that, cemeteries. That was a really um, interesting line to go down. Um, I haven't even thought about that. Like I think like sometimes it's great. Like this is a way to like have people go to this public art place that Mm -hmm. we've gone to before, but like Holocaust. So like it's amazing. There's there's yeah places that are appropriate and not appropriate for it and I don't think it was intentional from the research that I did it wasn't intentional from the game designers that they put it in the hall like the second floor of the holocaust room or whatever they like how they did it is you know their their systems like aggregated where people um collect the most and that's where they put those spots algorithmically based yeah Yeah. and dark tourism is like the second biggest tourism in America and um the holocaust museum would fall under dark tourism but um i barely understand what that is that's when people go to like the jeffrey dahmer's bar or something right yeah okay like more like i guess like heavier topics um things that like tragedies like different things like that um there was one night where we were raiding with Pokemon Go, and there were these raids that you could only do with big groups of people, and so they would like people would gather at like the parking lot of a grocery store, and you'd all go in in an order from one place to the next. And so there was one raid that was at a mosque, and it was so weird because I mean, on the one hand, it was cool; I would never have known that mosque would there, was there. I would never have been there, but we all like sixty people just converge on this mosque, yeah. and the people come out, and you can tell they're like terrified. They're, Some like, mom, what like, are what all is these happening people here? doing? Mm-hmm. And then, it, but it was an interesting like moment to create a dialogue, but it does really bring up those questions of like what yeah how do games change what is appropriate and how do you navigate that yeah i mean we didn't talk about alternate reality games here but um jane mcgonagall uh, well, she's mentioned this is like a huge proponent of this right and you're talking about these serious games that's a big thing for her yeah. right and her big one of her big things was alternate reality games yeah and pokemon go in that fashion is like functioning kind of like that I, absolutely right? and i think there's a lot of things you can do with it yeah um, but maybe aren't happening i don't know i love those kinds of games so mm-hmm. interested Thank you so much. Thank you. Humanities Plus is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and production manager is Kate Fartley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Release. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes like this and all of our shows. I'm your host, Rachel Scray, and thanks again for listening.